Good evening, Patriots. And it is Wednesday, July 6th, in the year 2022 on the West Coast, and you've hit Thursday already on the East Coast. Thursday's a busy day for me. So tomorrow, remember, there's four shows if you're so inclined. It's going to be a busy day anyway. Just by virtue of what's going on, the world's just kind of spinning crazily out of control. With that in mind, make sure you're doing everything you can to preserve your wealth. Birch Gold is one of those places that you can get great advice on how to deal with your investments. Patriots, we have been witnessing the economy slowly go through a death spiral. And the Fed has boxed itself in. The economy is in dire straits. And thanks to a loose money policy, there's no end in sight. Apparently, you just can't spend trillions every year without repercussions. And now, in an attempt to play catch-up, the Fed is raising rates and plans to do it seven more times this year. We're already starting to see the ripple effects in the housing market as people's buying power diminishes. What are you doing to protect your money? Have you considered what could happen if the stock market continues to fall or worse, crashes? Don't wait until that happens. Take some of your profits from the stock market now and solidify them with gold from Birch Gold. Throughout history, gold has maintained its value better than any other investment in the world. So text BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to the number 989898. Again, BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to the number 989898 for a free zero-obligation info kit on holding gold in a tax-sheltered retirement account. Again, text BARDS to 989898 and secure the gains from the hard-earned capital that you have. Join the thousands of Happy Birch customers, the countless five-star reviews, and an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau. Birch Gold, they're professionals, they're some of the best in the market. So again, text BARDS at 989898 to protect your future with gold. Well, Patriots, last night we were, we got through actually uh, chapter four of Esther, and we're going to pick that up in a little bit here with chapter five, but I wanted to do a few things first off. We had um, an interesting post today. I, I really like the summation of this, and I think it put frames everything really well. And this is from someone by the name of Catherine Johnston. She goes by C-A-I-T-O-Z. It looks like it's from Twitter. And it reads, The U.S. government views the American people as an annoying distraction from its real job of managing a global spanning empire. They couldn't be more obvious about it. The only thing keeping Americans from seeing it are the media spinmeisters telling them daddy loves them all day. I really agree with that. And it's really, when you think about that, you start to really understand what their real, what they see their real job is, which is a global empire that a few are managing that gives them massive rewards of wealth. We are just a generation of tax revenues, which how many times have I said, don't pay your taxes? I guess I can't advise that. I, in my opinion, it would be silly to be paying taxes to a government that is using all of its resources to um, try to suppress us. But that's just my opinion. You can take that for what it is. Again, take a look at the amendments and decide which ones you're going to follow because they're not following any of them, just for the record. Here's another little interesting bit of news. If you ever followed the channel Breaking 911, that was a good channel on Twitter always kind of gave you headlines and breaking events. 
Twitter suspended them today, which is interesting, which always it kind of indicates something bigger is coming when they start doing that preemptively. And then, of course, you probably did hear today that the Georgia Guidestones managed to have an accident overnight, like a detonation accident. One of the pillars blew up into about a 1,000 pieces. I've seen the footage of what they say was the actual explosion. (laughs) I'm going to tell you, I don't know what hit that thing. I can give you three options that make sense. One is a shape charge with Sentex. One is a small missile. And the other is an energy weapon. But whatever it was, it blew it to pieces. And then today they went in and they used a big backhoe and they tore down the rest of them. So good riddance. But here's what's interesting. It says the capsule, this was one of the stones on the, on the actual stone, the time capsule placed six feet below this spot. And so there's a time capsule there, which is interesting. Now, that leads me to a text I got from somebody tonight that gave a little bit of insight into that. I'm going to read a little bit of this. At least the time capsule that we buried on the property on March 22nd, 1980 is intact. Now listen to this. L. Ron Hubbard left specific instructions. You know who L. Ron Hubbard is, I hope. He's the one that founded Scientology. L. Ron Hubbard left specific instructions that it not be opened for 50 years until March 22nd, 2030 when the population of planet Earth would not exceed 500 million people. Obviously, the stage was set in motion a long time ago for eugenics depopulation. It is only coming to fruition now. The time capsule is 50 yards from the main structure, buried underground. Ron never told me what time, what the time capsule contains. When I asked, I, he said, I won't live that long. Make sure you're on the property on excavation day 32230. Ron died on January 24th, 1986. Ooh, the mysteries grow. Really strange. I'm telling you. But that's uh, what what we, we would like to know what's in that time capsule, wouldn't we? Prying eyes want to know. But anyway... That's all part of this time that we're in because we're literally living through a time which we have deceit among our ranks. And what's really profound is that even at this moment, we still don't know who the perpetrators are of the plot. The plot to destroy humanity. Who are they? That's the question. That's the first time we've ever heard L. Ron Hubbard's name get associated, to my knowledge, associated with this sort of global cabal of eugenics. Now, I don't know, I don't know enough about the Georgia Guidestones to say whether his name was associated with it or not. What limited knowledge I have of the Georgia Guidestones, his name never came up, but that does not mean anything other than I haven't encountered it. But the idea of associating L. Ron Hubbard with the global plan of eugenics, that's new to me. So it's interesting. So what we've, we're in this time of the plot against humanity, but we don't have a sense of who actually initiated the plot yet. 
But what we do know is there's still so much distortion out here that people literally are living in a time which they just are out of touch with what's real. And they're just saying stuff because they have an own per, their own personal agendas of what they want to see happen here because for them, we are simply cattle. We're slaves. Listen to this. Speaking of clueless actresses, Jessica Biel posted one of my favorite social media posts that I've seen in days. I don't know. There's really good stuff coming out these days because the libs are so clueless. They're so behind the ball here. It was a picture of Jessica Biel with her husband, Justin Timberlake, in front of the Eiffel Tower. She tweets out or posts on Instagram. You have croissants and women's rights? Damn, take me back. Because France, you see, they've got women's rights. Unlike America, where in America, we won't let you kill your baby in some circumstances. In America, in some states, in some circumstances, you're not allowed to kill your baby. And so Jessica Biel, who is completely ignorant of pretty much everything, she posts this picture of France, which is this beacon of liberalism. It's leftism. That's where we get the term left in politics. comes from France. comes from the French Revolution. And she says, ah, take me back. You've got good food and women's rights. Because Jessica Biel doesn't realize that France bans abortions after 14 weeks. <laughs> France has, and for a very long time, has had much more restrictive laws on abortion than the United States does. But Jessica Biel doesn't know that. <laughs> they just say stuff. It's unbelievable. But see, they're wanting to shape this nation into something completely different. This is the plot. And in spite of what's going on around the world, there is a group of people, very much like Haman, that have plotted for the destruction of entire, the entire Christian class. It is, it is really parallel here. And it's quite amazing, actually, when you think about it. And so that's where we left off last night, that Esther had been told to proceed to see the king. And she told him that she responded to the consequence. When Mordecai explained to her what was going to, that she needed to approach the king to save her people. And as she kind of contemplated on that, she realized that she was in the moment of having to make a decision to either continue to be the king, the queen, excuse me, and as Mordecai reminded her, no one will escape this. So either decide to stand with your people or we will all perish and ultimately so will you. And so this is when she responded in Esther 4:15. Then Esther told them to reply, told them to reply to Mordecai, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa. And fast for me, do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Commanded him. Now, this is what I find interesting here, is that, Esther is going to go to the king. She's made she's had the realization that she's going to have to make a decision 
of what she's going to do to preserve her people, to save her people. Because they're, they're faced with this edict that's been put out, that's been done by Haman's coup. His concept of a, of a, to wipe out all of the Jews, that's his plot. And he got the king to sign it by lying to him about who and what they are. But the rest of the kingdom doesn't know that Haman's behind this. This is on the king's signature. So I'm relating that to today again because it's important. We still don't know who the plotters are. I find this amazing. Who plotted this whole thing? We talk about action people. Like we know Pfizer's involved. We know that banksters are involved. We like to play around with this idea that Soros has funded a lot of this. But truthfully, who is the agent behind this plot to literally wipe out all the Christian class in America through a vaccine? That's the same type of attack that the Jews brought in. And so why I bring this up as we enter into Esther 5 is something to think about because Esther was going to go to the king and she knew that only two consequences would come out of this. If he agreed to see her, if he didn't agree with to see her, she would be off with her head, literally. She'd be done. And Haman would get his way, and all the Jews would be annihilated. But if she had her way, if she was able to persuade the king to listen to him, and the king was able as willing to listen, then came the question of what is the ask? What is it that you are seeking? So after three days of fasting, the question is, what is it that she was going to ask to seek? We're going to go through that, but I'm putting that out there even for us because we're going to address this in prayer tonight. What's our ask? If you've been joining in, in the fast for the last three days, or last two days, today's second day, great. Tomorrow's the third. But the question really, it is a question we all have to ask ourselves. What are we asking of God in this time? And I think it sits within the idea of exposing the plot and the plotters is what I really think we need right now. Justice is, uh, is going to happen. God has already told us justice is coming. But we still don't know the plot and the plotters. So I'm going to continue now with Esther 5. And she's now planning the banquet. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. When the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you, queen? Queen Esther, and with, and what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be given to you. Esther said, If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly with we may do as Esther's desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. As they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? For it shall be granted to you, 
and what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. So Esther replied, My petition and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. Haman's Pride Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman, then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him about the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, Even Esther the queen, let no one be but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I plan invited by her with the king. Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows fifty cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. A little bit of drama here, isn't it? Esther 6. During the night, the king could not sleep, so he gave an order to bring the books of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ajasuras. The king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the court, the outer court in the king's palace, in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. The king's servants said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let him bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed, and let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Now this is another one of these great aspects of Esther, because nowhere in here you note that God has been mentioned, and yet it's the unspoken power. Esther follows her heart. 
she fasts, and then she approaches the king, and in approaching the king, invites him to a banquet, obviously. And it's there then that she's allowed to speak because of the scepter, that whole piece, right? And then as Haman is now plotting to destroy the banquet, the king is stirred from sleep, and he goes and has the chronicles read to him. That's God's hand. And that's the power in so much of this story is that as we lead as God wants us to in our heart, things happen. Events begin. Esther didn't wake the king. The king was awoken. It's unspoken. And what the opportunities that begin to unfold happen because we responded to God. This is where the this is truly the power of the sword of the spirit for me. Because we're always looking as the way we've been conditioned in our world, we're always the ones that want to be the trigger puller. We want to be the ones on the front line pulling all the doing all the great deeds. And yet we forget that we are obedient to God. And if God asks us to do something and we follow, justice is God's, not ours. And that's what's most profound here because that is exactly what's happening. And Mordecai in his ego and his obsession of himself and the arrogance of thinking that he was ahead of the king has now laid out the reward that he thought he was going to receive, but instead it's going to be given to Mordecai. Then the king said to Haman, take quickly the robes and the horses as you have said and do so for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate and do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried home, mourning, with his head covered. Haman recounted that Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you had begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. This is, again, these whole events unfolding because Esther's playing her role. She's the dutiful person in all of this. And you even roll back to where Esther is in this process and, and, and consider it that she was put into a harem and that she had to end up spending a night with the king to see which of those in the harem that the king was most pleased with. I don't need to fill in the details there. We can see it. And this is one of these bizarre, not really bizarre, but one of these insightful things that even acts like this that we might consider to be sinful, God has put her on a path and she's dutiful to it. And in the process, God is using her in a profound way to save the Jews. Something that she had not even considered when she entered the harem. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther's, Esther the queen. Now this is Esther 7. And the king said to Esther on the second day also, 
as they drank their wine at the banquet, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now if we had only been sold as slaves, men and, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not, have, would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then King Ajasuerus asked Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who would, have, who would presume to do thus? Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and queen. So the plot's now revealed, obviously. Again, we go back to our own time. Who are the plotters? We have all this focus on people like Pelosi and Hillary and whatever else. But let's be real. These people don't have the placement or the access to do these sorts of deeds on a global scale and to do the deeds on a, on a national scale. And yet we are here six years, almost seven years into an awakening, and we still don't know the plotters or the plot. We think we do, but we've never had it placed, placed, placed before us clearly. The king now has the plot and the plotter placed before him and in the same presence. The king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now when the king returned from the palace garden in the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Arbona, one of the eunuchs who were, who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, he spoke, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. We often say, and always it's, it comes back to that God has the just the final say on justice. Justice is God's. And yet it doesn't, we don't acknowledge that God uses us for justice. This is a brutal end for Haman. And he wasn't saved. Haman had betrayed, had made a huge betrayal. And the only way through this was that he had to he had to give up and forfeit his life as a way to, of payment, so to speak for having tried to take all the lives of the Jews. And again, in this entire book, there is no direct link or mention of God, but we can see God's hand moving through this tremendously. And it's all centered on the aspect of Esther being dutiful in her mission and trusting in God through the entire process. 
On that day, this is now Esther 8, on that day, King Azasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to, what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman, the Agagite, and his plot, which was devised against the Jews. The king extended the golden scepter to Esther, so Esther arose and stood before the king. Then she said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, I am pleasing to it in his sight. Let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamaditha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in the king's province. For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people, and how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So the so King Ajasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the and him they have hanged on the gallows because he has stretched out his hands against the Jews. Now you write to the Jews so you see fit in the king's name to seal it with the king's signet ring. For the decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed in the king's signet ring may not be revoked. So here we have the, this another impossible end. And nothing can be stopped at this point in time. It cannot be revoked. So the king's scribes were called at, the time, at that time in the third month, that is the month of Sivina, Siva, Sivan, Sivan, and the twenty-third day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces, which extended from India to Ethiopia, provinces to every province according to the script, and to every people according to their language, as well as the Jews according to the script and their language. He wrote in the name of King Azasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent the letters by couriers on horses riding on steeds, stirred by the royal stud. In them the king granted the Jews, who were in each and every city, the right to assemble and defend themselves, defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil on one day in all the provinces of King Azazurus, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, and that is the month of Adar. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in each and every province was published to all the peoples, so that the Jews would be ready for that for this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers hastened and impelled the king's command, went out riding on royal steeds, and the decree was given out to the citadel of in Susa. Then Mordecai went out in front of the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple in the city of Susa, shouted and rejoiced. 
for the Jews there were light and and gladness and joy and honor. In each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many among the people of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. Basically gave him Second Amendment rights, which I point out in particular because so much of our own constitution is grounded in Scripture. And when you take Scripture out of it, you can end up with these ridiculous arguments about how guns are dangerous. We know that guns don't cause harm. What we know is that people cause harm to others, especially when they're manipulated and directed. And if we consider this time, again, in terms of a framing of similar to Esther, what we see that's interesting is how the plot and the scheme has been to raise up an army within the people to ultimately destroy and eradicate the Christians from this land, us. That army has taken on many forms. It's taken on the forms of Antifa, of BLM. It's taken on the form at some point of MS-13. It's taken on the form of gangs and foreign terrorists, armed young men, fighting age males that all came to do a deed to eradicate the Christians from the land, us. And it is not something that's been rescinded, but instead, two weeks ago, the Second Amendment right was reinforced. It was reinforced in a time like this, such as this, to remind us, in my opinion, that we are expected to take whatever measures are necessary to defend against those that seek to eradicate us. This is not peace at any cost. Quite to the contrary. This is life with God. And it's an important aspect. It does not get portrayed enough because God is not about good or bad. God's position on much of this as it's God's way, which will, which I mentioned in the previous show, and we'll close with that in a little bit, which is Joshua 5. So now we're at Esther 9. Now in the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, on the 13th day when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over the, those that hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout the province of King Azazurus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all of the peoples. Even the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout the province, for the man Mordecai became greater and greater. Thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. 
At the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And Parashdatha, <laughs> Dolphon, Asvatha, Paratha, Adalia, Aridatha, Paramasta, Arisei, Aride, and Bezatha, the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamaditha, the Jews' enemy, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. If you remember back to Jericho, that was one of the things God had told Joshua was not to plunder the temple, and yet they did. On that day, the number of those who were killed at the citadel in Susa was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman at the citadel of Susa. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It shall be granted you. And what is your furthest request? It shall also be done. Then said Esther, If it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged in the gallows. So the king commanded it, that it should be done. And an edict was issued in Susa, and Haman's ten sons were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the fourteenth day of the month, Adar, and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of their enemies and kill 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. This was done on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and the 14th day they, they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and 14th of the same month, and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Therefore, the Jews of the rural areas who lived in rural towns make the 14th day of the month Adar a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. Then Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month, Adar, and the 15th day of the same month, annually, because of those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies, and it was a month which was turned from them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into holiday, that they should make them, make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of the food to one another and gifts to the poor. Thus the Jews undertook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written them. For Haman, the son of Hamaditha, the Agagite, the adversary of the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is the lots, to disturb, disturb them and destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that this, his wicked scheme, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he had his he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the name Pure, and because of the instructions of the letter, both what had 
what they had seen in regard and what they what had happened to them. The Jews established and made a custom of themselves and for the descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days and according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, every city, and these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from the descendants. Then Queen Esther, daughter of Adihael, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim. He set the letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ajasuerus, namely words of peace and truth, to establish these days of Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them, and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants with instructions for their times of fasting and lamentations. The command of Esther established these customs for Purim, and it was written in the book. I I find this story truly, and I, I truly mean this, profound in so many ways because it is a reminder of strength in the midst of humility. It's a place here that in spite of everything, God had them do actions and do deeds in a very humble way. They obeyed, and yet what came of it was a massive amount of strength and justice, justice delivered by both the king and those who were going to be victimized. So Esther 10, which closes out the book, now King Ajasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all of the accomplishments of his authority and strength and full account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ajasuerus, and great among the Jews, and in favor of his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people, and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. And what an empowerful moral at the end of that. We have to continue to seek the strength and good of our people while also seeking the welfare of the nation. But to do both means at times there has to be a line drawn in the sand. We literally are at such a time as this. We are seeing a rise at an existing hatred for everything that we are. And though we can see that some of it is diminishing, and I believe that it is, it is still very prevalent that there are people out there that seek to destroy everything related to God and and God's children. And we cannot be assumed in any way that we are somehow expected to seek peace at any cost. I do not believe that. I don't buy into that narrative at all. And in fact, that's why I say when we look back at two weeks ago, when the confirmation of the Supreme Court assured us of concealed carry which was a reminder of our Second Amendment rights. It didn't say go on the offensive, but it did remind us all that we have a right and an obligation to defend ourselves from those that seek to destroy us. That's clear, and it's very clear to me. And as we read through Esther, we can see that in this story that there came a point when violence which was to be done on then was met with a greater violence to destroy it because there was no other resolve. We aren't seeking that. 
they didn't seek that. But the circumstances were put in play by, the, by those that created the plot, the plotters. And everything was diffused to a point until it couldn't be diffused anymore. And then the strength of the people stood. And in so doing, the, the people didn't seek the justice for just themselves. They sought the justice for the whole nation. They didn't steal the wealth. They didn't plunder the wealth. They simply stood up for their right unquestionable right to exist without persecution. And that, to me, is one of the most powerful places we can be. And ultimately, this takes us to Joshua 5, 13, which is the question of sides. Because in these stories, we too often put a good versus evil, bad versus good good guys, bad guys, those are framings of stories that aren't God's necessarily. Because God sees things in a bigger way, as we just saw. And it's important to remember Joshua 5.13. Now it came about when Joshua was was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. He was not for either one. He was representing God. And that's ultimately the path we walk. We don't walk the path of making sides. If we walk the path of the Lord, walk the path that God leads us on, it's his path. And it will take us through some wild twists and turns. If we reflect on that path in terms of Esther, look at what she had to do. She had to live inside of a harem. She had to spend the night with the king to be selected. She had to risk her life in trying to come to the king and ask to speak to him. She was given the scepter, not once, but twice. She took the risks. God led her on the way. In the meantime, her people were faced with extermination. And right until the last minute, that's the amazing part here too. There's been so much eagerness that's happened over these last few years. When's it going to happen? When's that arrest going to happen? When's that going to happen? It's not about the institutions of men. It's about the hand of God. And God brings the people, the Jews, to the brink. He brings Esther to the brink. He brings Mordecai to the brink. And there he learns the true heart of the people. And the true heart was pure with God. And he rewards them. And the rewarding in this sense was that justice was absolutely delivered. Over 75,000 people slain and the entire house of Haman destroyed. That was justice. The plot ended. Mordecai lives in infamy. And the king now gains good counsel, which is so important because that's the principle of a nation, that it needs leaders with good counsel. And those counsels are given to him by God, whether Haman or whether the king understood or accepted those counsels as a gift from God is unknown. But now suddenly God gave that counsel around him with a queen, 
and with his second, which has become Mordecai. Pretty profound for me, when I, especially when I look at the times that we are in. So the p- final part of this is the ask. What is it that we want? What Esther wanted was the right for her people to, to have, he, she wanted first the king to know of the deceit and the plotter, and the plot and the plotter. She later wanted the right for her people not to be threatened. Two asks, she was clear on them. And in reflection of where we've all traveled these last few years, I would say our asks haven't been clear and decisive. And I go back to the plot and the plotter. Following the line of Esther, we still don't know the plot and we still don't know the plotters. We talk about justice, but justice comes in a form of truth. So tonight, as we close in prayer, I'm going to include in prayer an ask that we discover the nature of the plot and the plotters. So it becomes clear for all. Because in that step of awakening, then the entire foundations of what they intended, their ability to control people, begins to crumble. Let us pray. Father, we come to you tonight after finishing the book of Esther deeply humbled and in reflection of just how incredible your hand is in working so many events. This is a story that reminds us, Father, of of the complexities of life, that in this process, not everything that seems right ends up being right because you've guided it. They were often put into places that we could not imagine ourselves being, places that will compromise us, perhaps, places that will challenge us, places that seem to put us in duplicity with what we, what we seek, and yet as you put us there, our hearts are revealed. And we're reminded of that so much in this story of how Esther and Mordecai had their hearts tested deeply. But what we also learn, Father, is that there was a clarity of what they were seeking. In all of this fight that we've been through, in this attempt to stand for our nation, there's perhaps one thing that we have not done well, and that is to clarify our ask to you. In all of this time, Father, we have yet to discover the plot in its full entirety, and the plotters. We've seen pieces. We have seen glimpses, but we haven't seen the full picture, not clearly as it was presented by Esther to the king and revealed all of the details that Haman had done. So, Father, tonight we just ask in a prayer, a deep and profound prayer. Father, Let us see the plot and the plotters in full. No more games. Let all of the veils fall. Let it be visible for everyone to see and to witness. From there, they can make a choice. As the people, as the Jews did in the story of Esther, they made that choice. The whole, all the people did. 
Many joined the Jews. Others remained hateful. But it's time now, Father, for us to see all of us in the nation and the world, all of us, to see the plot and the plotters. No more second guessing, no more lies. Let it be revealed. And with that, let the threshing floor be complete with those that choose to stand with you and those that choose to stand against. So, Father, we just pray for this awakening, this truth above all. Let us see the plot and the plotters. And we say these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. An interesting time we live, a challenging one, and one that will continue to challenge us in many ways. We're living in a strange time in that we are anticipating, we feel, we know some big things are happening, but we can't quite put our finger on it. And so we prepare. And this is very much as the Jews were. They didn't know what was coming. But they had to prepare, but at the same time, never left their faith and prayer with God. Most importantly, in in that moment of great crisis, they joined together at the request or direction of Queen Esther, and they fasted. And they prayed. And ultimately, God delivered. And that's the thing. God always delivers, if we're clear. Timing may not be what we like but God always delivers. So tonight, hopefully our prayer was in great unity with everybody. And with this, there will be reveals and the plotters will be exposed. I have no doubt. Have faith. Patriots, have a blessed evening. Keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. Our prayers need to be up with clarity of what we need. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God will always win. But we are here in this time, in this place, for just such a time as this. We are at war. Walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Mission forward. Patriots, I'll see you tomorrow for Bended Knee. Until then or until the next time, God bless. Good night. Thank you, and out for now. All this time we had to prove that we could stand here too. All the nights been pushing through, fight for all we had to lose. Reaching out for something to pull us up to the level ground. Oh, I can see it now.
sun sets down over the hill where the lost got found. Reaching through somehow, oh, you're.